Hi, I'm Wendy Dean. And I'm Simon Talbot. And this is Moral Matters. Today we're speaking with Reverend Brian Hughes, who is an advanced practiced board certified chaplain and spiritual care specialist who's been providing support to United Healthcare and Optum providers since 2018. He co-founded and co-chairs the Burnout Coalition within the enterprise and helps bring together stakeholders to address burnout and work-life well-being throughout the organization. Simon and Brian talked together. I was traveling at the time. So let's have a listen. Well, uh, Brian, as we discussed, Wendy is away today, so it's just you and me, but I'm really looking forward to this conversation. As you know, this has been a long time in the making uh, since we spoke to one another uh, more than two years ago now. And I would like to start with, obviously, the general beginning. Can you give us a little bit of an introduction about what you do and who you work for? Absolutely. Uh, My name is Brian Hughes, uh, the Reverend Brian Hughes, and I'm a board-certified chaplain. I have been board-certified for 21 years now. And for the last four and a half years, have been working for United Health, uh, the health insurance company. And so within United, there's uh, United Health Group, which is the corporate entity. There's United Health Care, which is kind of the insurance uh, side. And then there's Optum Care, which is functionally the clinical side. And I've worked in kind of all aspects of those three different kind of functions within United Health. So you've been working as a chaplain for, for 20 plus years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us a little bit about your career, what, what you've done and how you ended up working for a essentially a health insurance company. Absolutely. Yes. Um, well, I started um, my chaplaincy career doing a residency in, at the same institution where my wife was doing her fourth year of medical school. Uh, she was at Texas A&M Medical School. Uh, we were at Scott and White, that's now Baylor and Scott and White in Temple, Texas. Uh, so I did my CPE or clinical pastoral education. Uh, it's like a residency basically for chaplaincy um, and did my training there in her fourth, when she was doing fourth year medical school and then followed her around for her training. She's a breast cancer surgeon now here in the greater Dallas area. Um, but we went to uh, Phoenix for five years uh, where she was a general surgery resident at Mayo Scottsdale. And I worked uh, first as a fellow, a chaplaincy, a chaplaincy fellow um, at Banner. Uh, it used to be Banner Good Samaritan Medical Center, now is Banner University Medical Center in downtown Phoenix. And then was hired on as their first full-time clinical staff chaplain there um, and got board certified in the process there. Uh, was there for five years. Uh, then we came to Texas and we're here for a year um, where I worked at Baylor Irving Medical Center, also now part of the Baylor Scott and White system where I worked as a staff chaplain primarily in critical care and, and palliative care, uh, which were kind of my areas of specialty uh, or specialization in Phoenix as well. And then we went to Philadelphia for a year and uh, where, she, where Genevieve, my wife, did her uh, fellowship in breast cancer surgery at Bryn Mawr. I worked um, downtown at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. Um, as a staff chaplain there, and also at their sister facility, McGee Rehabilitation Center, which is a freestanding rehab about a mile away. Um, And then right at the end of my wife's fellowship, we uh, got pregnant with our oldest child who just turned 13 last week. And uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, Teenagers, I don't know if the graduation, the condolences (laughs) are most in order, but we'll take it. We'll Um, go with congratulations. (laughs) Appreciate it. Um, And we had always agreed that when... um, when we had a child, if one of us could, when one of us would stay home. So I started 
um, basically being a stay-at-home dad and working with an organization out of New York City called um, Healthcare Chaplaincy Network uh, that's been around since 1961, uh, but working with them uh, doing consulting and research in the chaplaincy space and basically professional chaplaincy advocacy, for the mm-hmm. lack of a better term, um, and did that part-time kind of virtually uh, from home as we started to raise a, a young family. And um, then about five years ago, five and a half years ago, one of my good friends and colleagues, uh, a chaplain who was a resident when we were in Philadelphia, a woman named Gila Rajahi, um, is also a board-certified chaplain now. She was a resident when I was a staff there. And we became friends, and she uh, was one of 16 chaplains that got a fellowship to subsidize a master's in public health um, to begin to uh, kind of get a more robust um, research base for professional chaplaincy. And so she chose to do her uh, MPH at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And the other 15 chaplains all went into healthcare systems for their internships. She went to United Healthcare and basic, the health insurance company and basically tried to find where there might be a place of resonance or connection between um, what United provides and the scope of practice of the professional chaplain. And that led to 10 hours a week originally uh, in one specific uh, line of business. Uh, United is kind of, I describe it kind of like a articles of confederation on some levels and that lots of different lines of business have kind of functional independence uh, from, from other lines of business. And so it's been uh, a little tricky trying to get, take root for chaplaincy in within United because it's line of business specific. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started with 10 hours a week there um, then began uh, within about a year and a half to work in what's called the Family Engagement Center, which is still where I'm employed now. Um, and then uh, after about a year there, began to provide support uh, for staff in what is now called our home and community team, but is a, a bunch of advanced practice clinicians working in long-term care and started to work in a staff support role there right as COVID hit because Seattle and New York City, especially long-term care, they were getting slammed. Mm-hmm. And um, the director of that line of business came originally inquiring whether I might be of help in um, supporting her staff with advanced care planning conversations. Uh, but in listening to her describe some of what they were experiencing, I pretty quickly was like, what you really need is a chaplain just to support your staff. Uh, there are about 1,500 um, advanced practice clinicians working in that context. And so stepped away from Texas, uh, which is where it was my first line of business that was only member-facing, um, and started to work in that staff-supporting role. So at this point, I've worked in three different lines of business, and we have four uh, full-time chaplains working within the broader enterprise, which has been a good start. Wow, that's an amazing uh, series of different interconnected jobs and a long string of experience that you have. I'm particularly curious in that your wife is a physician, mm-hmm. and it's interesting that the perspective you probably have of healthcare and of chaplaincy within healthcare because of that. Can you speak a little to that? Yeah, it's definitely been unique both among my professional colleagues in chaplaincy, but also in my wife's colleagues uh, within the mm-hmm. practice of medicine. Um, she's been in leadership at her uh, institution as well and was just a, a president of the medical staff recently. And so, and right as COVID hit, actually. So watching her experience that role in leadership right as COVID was hitting was pretty insightful for me and kind of being able to 
look behind the curtain of the wizard, <laughs> so to speak, yeah, and see absolutely. the scrawny, scrawny dude with lovers, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, so, yeah. but just, I mean, you know, for five years, she averaged, she started her residency right as the U, uh, United States Graduate Medical Education, USGME, put in their work restriction hours or work hours restriction of 80 hours in a, in a work week. And she averaged probably 80 hours in a work week for five years. Mm-hmm. And um, so pretty quickly, uh, the center of my target professionally was, and it continues to be clinicians broadly and just recognizing, um, you know, my wife is a breast cancer surgeon working with oncology all the time. You know, th- there's a good success rate, obviously, uh, with surgery and treatment, but they're often uh, really difficult experiences and, um, and just trying to be in a place of support and and um, reminder for her and for people in her type of role about mm-hmm. what it was that brought them to medicine to begin with, the why kind yes. of, of of their work. Uh, I, I jokingly kind of refer to it as connecting their soul to their role um, <laughs> and trying yeah. to kind of remember, like, what, what, why did you do this? Because you put in, you know, by the time you're done with your fellowship for my wife, I don't remember, 10, 12 years, something of, of training after undergrad uh, to get to this point professionally. And there's a lot of hassles and headaches, of course, involved in just yes. the systems within which they work. Um, but I also I try to help clinicians frame and remember what it is about their work that they find fulfilling and meaningful and um, what brings them joy or delight in it. Yeah. And, um, you know, my, my wife graduated a, a patient yesterday after 10 years of, wow, of initial, initial surgery 10 years ago. So that those kind of um, experiences are clarifying and kind of serve as a North Star, I think, for a lot of clinicians. Absolutely. I want to step back and mm-hmm. potentially correct even a misconception that I may have. Could you tell us what a chaplain actually is? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> um, well, because I'm not sure that everybody's clear on exactly the same thing. Thank you. I appreciate that opportunity. Um, first of all, it's spelled C-H-A-P-L-A-I-N, not, not mm-hmm. without that second A. Some people like to think it's like Charlie Chaplin. It's not. Uh-huh. <laughs> Chaplin, uh, there's an A in there. So, um, But basically, uh, a board-certified chaplain is one who has um, been trained typically with a three-year master's degree. Um, it's often, if, if they're of the Christian faith, it's often what's called a master of divinity. Mm-hmm. But there, there are chaplains of all faith traditions and chaplains that don't have a specific faith tradition. One of my best friends and candidly a chaplain I would want at my bedside if I were hospitalized uh, in New York City is a secular humanist. So he doesn't have a specific faith tradition he adheres to. And he's uh, recently been on the board of our certifying, one of our certifying bodies. And mm-hmm. so uh, in a position of real leadership there. Um, but in addition to that training, the Master of Divinity, or what a lot of, that's the kind of med school for ministers. It's, you know, okay. it's kind of what most ministers, <laughs> yep. it's what most ministers in the Christian faith um, have as their education, a three-year mm-hmm. degree. In addition to that, then, um, most chaplains are both ordained within their own faith tradition, if, they're, if their faith tradition ordains. Mm-hmm. Um, like Buddhists don't ordain, that's a, that's a different paradigm, but um, there are equivalencies for that. And then they do at least a minimum of one year of residency. Again, kind mm-hmm. of think like medical, like graduate medical education. So there's there's your four or your two years of of clinical training and two years of, um, I mean, two years of classroom training and two years of clinical training, mm-hmm. and then your residency. That residency time is one to two years typically for most chaplains, where they're learning 
not often, but or not not always, but often within the healthcare system. So there are chaplains in prison and military and other contexts as well. Mm-hmm. Um, business, for example, with United, um, right. but they uh, they're learning about the hospital and the interdisciplinary team and advanced care planning and bioethics and um, collaborative work, communication, those kind of things. And there's a lot of introspective work as well and kind of connecting chaplains to um, psychological best care as well, evidence-based best practice. And um, and then there's a, a minimum of one additional year of work of 2,000 hours to be able to qualify to become board certified. Um, and then there's there are several different certifying bodies, but um, the state doesn't license chaplains because uh-huh. I think the state doesn't want to get in the business of saying you're a legitimate holy person <laughs> and you're not. And they just are right. like, thanks, but not it. Okay. And so uh, the VA healthcare, healthcare system, for example, recognizes uh, board certification as an equivalent of licensure for chaplains. And I so see. that's kind of the standard. And then the kind of the fundamental ethic professionally is I am, even though I myself am of the Christian faith, we worship with the Presbyterian Church, um, and I grew up in the Church of Christ as my uh, kind of um, church heritage. Um, my job is to connect the people I work with to their own frame of reference, mm-hmm. whatever that is. If they're religious, great, and uh, you know, and if they're not, uh, great. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. I, I've, lost, I've lost track with, of, you know, I think at about fifteen of faith traditions that I don't think I had ever heard of. I mean, like you know, things yep. like voodoo or some sort of native tradition or <laughs> wow. neo pagan or secular humanist. I mean, things that aren't in kind of the big five or six yeah. um, kind of world faith traditions, and you know. Right now in the U.S., the number of people who claim that they are spiritual but not religious has exploded in the last 10 years. Yeah, and so there are imagine. a lot of people that are kind of de-affiliating with specific faith traditions, but still trying to kind of hold on to their own uh, meaning and values. And so th- right. that's fundamentally, I kind of think of it like um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Okay. Uh, uh, um, and that... Maslow's not, I was got that confused with the burnout person, Um, but Maslow's hierarchy of of needs and and the fundamental thing that all of us as humans face is meaning making. What do we value? What are our beliefs? um, What are attitudes? And those values, beliefs, attitudes, and meaning making inform how we respond then to things like illness uh, or to a plan of care. Uh, uh-huh. And to what, whether we want aggressive or non-aggressive treatment, those kind of things, whether we're compliant or not compliant. Obviously, you know, the uh, vaccine excitement in the last year and a half has been a good example of people's values sometimes trumping um, evidence-based just practice, for example, right, 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 right. because they have an ideological or, or some kind of uh, concern that may be at odds with uh, the, the vaccine itself. And then those obviously lead to health outcomes. So chaplains are a part of the interdisciplinary team and integrated into that team and trying to help elicit um, from people often in a time of crisis, in a time of grief or a new diagnosis uh, or a significant um, change in diagnosis. A lot of times if somebody who has a chronic illness maybe is going to be finally, they have medical multiple sclerosis and they're finally getting in a wheelchair. That's a huge Mm -hmm. kind of uh, rite of passage for the lack of a better frame. Mm-hmm. Um, and with a new normal and trying to make sense of that. So chaplains are often conversation partners in that and trying to be supportive and, again, trying to connect a person to their own uh, spiritual, religious, or meaning-making values and not superimposing our own. That would be a, a breach of professional ethics. 
Perfect. That clarifies so many things for me. So okay. thank you. Very cool. So then I, I guess that leads me on to the second part of my thought on this, which is my background has always been that a chaplain, uh, you know, works at a hospital or, or, mm-hmm. or is at a church. Mm-hmm. And so my curiosity is how does a chaplain fit in with a large corporation like yours? And it was news to me that corporations even had chaplains until mm-hmm. I met you. So I'm fascinated by that. Yeah, I, great question. And, it, and it's, there are different paradigms. Um, and, you know, even within United, as, as I mentioned earlier, there's one of our chaplains that's full-time in the role that I first started in. Their scope of practice is almost, ex- I think, pretty much exclusively member support or, or patient support. So they get referrals from um, functionally case managers who do a screen for spiritual distress and then refer those members and this chaplain's providing telephonic support. But that's the entire scope of the practice of that role. Um, my colleague Laura and I, working in our family engagement center, we do the same kind of thing. We have care advisors uh, who are call center employees that are fielding calls from people that when they call the number on the back of their health insurance card. Um, and if they are in distress or if they're grieving the loss of a recent loss or if they're struggling um, with sometimes mental health even, um, that can that can come to us. There's been a huge spike in that, understandably, in the last couple of years of anxiety and depression and those kind of things. We know our lane, and so even if it's even if somebody who's has a mental health crisis is referred to me, often my role is then trying to help facilitate connecting them to a mental health provider in their community, uh, or virtually, or something like that. But in addition to providing that member-facing support, we provide staff support as well. And then um, my colleague Alexandra, who works in the uh, commu- home and community team with the advanced practice clinicians and nursing centers and, and long-term care. Her role is exclusively staff support and no member support at all. So wow. there's variation even within, even among the four of us <laughs> within a huge organization that has 350,000 employees. I mean, it's a mid-sized city wow. worldwide. Yeah. And the, of those, there's a 100,000 clinicians and we serve together 150 million uh, members, which obviously I don't get anywhere near you know, 99% of that, but have begun to work with kind of an um, enterprise, they call it the bigger organization, the enterprise, enterprise-wide efforts to address things like employee well-being, mm-hmm. um, burnout, um, compassion fatigue, those kind of things, and and have uh, really made some some pretty significant strides in that space, just recognizing that like any huge organization or healthcare, uh, health, especially healthcare related right now, the um, code red <laughs> as far as yeah, uh, yeah. staffing and, you yeah. know, with two, with two jobs available for every potential employee, you know, employee yep. um, it becoming and not just an, and, and remaining an employer of choice, um, let alone one that does right by their employees yeah. Um, yeah. Is, a, is a moving target often. Yeah, and no so, question. Yeah. So, so within our organization, my, my work has increasingly moved to things like providing staff support. So one of the things I've done, for example, recently, um, well, recently it started with COVID, so it's not that recent now. But for the, um, the last two years, uh, I host a uh, Microsoft Teams meeting, like a Zoom meeting uh, for clinicians um, that have up to 85 people attend each week. Um, and it's called the cleansing bonfire experience. And basically, <laughs> that which, sounds which, like a, it sounds a little, little heebie-jeebie or something, right? But, but yeah. you know what? What's interesting is um, it's been super impactful. Like the NPS score, the like, would you recommend this to your colleagues? Is like a nine point eight or nine point nine out of ten, or something wow. like unheard of. That's huge. Yeah. And yeah. And basically, what we do is 
I just say, look, (laughs) y'all, this last two years has sucked. It's been hard. It's been really intense. And let's, first of all, just stop for a minute and recognize what we've experienced. And so I kind of walk through, we've had a million people now officially die of COVID. We've seen racial unrest as as we did just recently in Buffalo with the shootings there Um, and kind of give a litany of here's some of the stuff we've struggled with. And then I invite people to privately chat to me uh, in the chat feature of the platform, uh, their response to specific prompts. And so the first prompt is, how has the racial unrest impacted you and your family? Mm-hmm. And then the second prompt is, how has the last two years impacted your social life and then your family life and then your work life? And then we have a, a cleansing bonfire, like the idea, the conceit of it is as if we were together in person and people are writing things down on a page mm-hmm. and passing it over to me and I'm reading them aloud anonymously. So mm-hmm. when the comments come into me privately in each of these prompts, I read them aloud, but it's anonymous. So everyone, no one knows who on the call said what except me. And I read those aloud, and then at the end, we have kind of this cleansing time or this time to kind of unclench or release some of these burdens, and that's what the bonfire is about. And so we have a slide where we, uh, where, where we release these, and then we, have a, we finish with a, a picture, amazing photograph out of uh, San Diego of California poppy wildflowers on a hill that just five months earlier had been on fire with a, with a Witch Creek fire. Oh, that's and so, so cool. we talk, Yeah, so we talk about... Sometimes this kind of intense fire experience can actually serve as nutrient for future mm-hmm. growth. And yeah. so like basically what from the last couple of years are you wanting to hang on to as something you've learned or grown with? So we kind of leave in a place of hope yeah. um, at the end of the time. But the, the, that does have been incredibly meaningful to me. We've had over 7,000 people attend in person. Wow, that's and amazing. we've had an additional 2,500 people attend so far and with un- recorded on-demand version. That's great. I mean, it's fascinating to hear that the whole idea of new life coming from something that's uh, sort of destructive. Mm-hmm. You know, we think about forest fires, the, the poppy mm-hmm. analogy you just made, mm-hmm. uh, I think is very important. And I think that as we go forward in healthcare, this is sort of a critical time when we can reinvent some of the things we've done. We've learned a lot of things from COVID. We've seen a lot of tragedy, mm-hmm. but we have proven that we can make change quickly, that we can mm-hmm. adapt to situations really well, that we can cope with a lot of things. And hopefully we can capitalize on that opportunity. in the the same way. One of the things that you and I spoke about previously was the role of chaplaincy in morality. Mm -hmm. And uh, a related topic, which we should talk about, is secular morality. Mm -hmm. I'm curious your thoughts on chaplaincy and morality and secular morality. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I really... Yeah, there, there's a lot of meat on the bone for this discussion, obviously. <laughs> I, I can, realize can, I'm trying can, to claim it. No, in, no, yeah. <laughs> no, it's all good. And again, I mean, that can go pretty esoteric pretty quickly, too. So, yeah. you know, the biggest thing for me is goes back to that conversation about values. And so part of what I try to do when I work with individuals as well as with teams is try to help them clarify for them as an individual or them as a te- as a part of a team. What are the central or core values and how do those play out in their daily work? And that um, that's not always simple, obviously. No. And there are times when clinicians, especially, but even non-clinician uh, employees that, with whom we work are trying to do their best to, to connect their deepest and highest priorities and values as people and the, kind of that human to human connection. Mm-hmm. And sometimes in a world of AI and metrics and, um, what I kind of jokingly or kind of derisively call the widgetification of of people sometimes. It can Mm -hmm. feel like um, there's a lot of churn 
um, or a lot of um, potential tension there. But I think for most people, just being able to clarify, what I, it's, it's called job crafting. It's actually one of your colleagues. Uh, no, I guess it was a Yale colleague, so one of the lesser Ivies. Um, <laughs> we don't uh, say Yale, that, but that's okay. <laughs> I, no, I know. I, I went to Princeton <laughs> Seminary, so I come by that honestly. But, um, so Yale, Yale business professor Amy Wojnowski does some work on job crafting, mm-hmm. where the idea is in general, what are the things about your role? Say so you show up at your work and you have 100 things on your to-do list. Of those, maybe five to 10 are things that are the center of your target as a person, the things that bring you delight, that bring you back, that, that you're saying that, that right there is why I do what I do. Like those five or 10 things, how do we prioritize those in our work? Obviously, hopefully that they're a part of our scope of practice and essential mm-hmm. functions of our role. But then you can also do the same thing with relationships. There are people that when you, you, you're done talking to them, you walk away feeling encouraged and enlightened and um, better. And there are people who are the right. opposite of that, right? And so <laughs> yes. to how, to, how to prioritize FaceTime with the ones that that bring that kind of joy and how to potentially minimize the opposite of that. And then there's a way you frame your work. And so there's a, um, there's a colleague of mine um, within our enterprise, a guy named Mike Baker, who used to work with our Medicare call center. And he had it set up to where when he came in, there, was, there were real problems around um, morale and uh, retention in that space for these call center employees because their role was cold calling recipients of United Health Insurance through Ooh. Medicare <laughs> and asking yeah. them to try to get a colonoscopy screening. Yeah. So yeah. Not, not, not Girl Scout cookies, right? Yeah. Like, like yeah. it's just yeah. not gonna, <laughs> most people hung up on them, yell at them, that kind of stuff. That was not a good, yeah. but, but Mike and his team did some research and found that if they could convince 104 people to get a colonoscopy screening, and if they could convince, I think it was 454 people to get a mammography screening, and I think the other one, I don't, I don't remember what the other, there was another metric they used. For each one of those that they found, like one out of 104, they could save one life. Wow, that's incredible. So yeah, so they reframed their work and they had pins and banners and post-it notes and screensavers, we save lives. Wow. Like yeah. that's, that was what they framed, how they framed their work. And so the third kind of role of task, uh, of um, job crafting is basically how you frame your work and yeah. their retention rate got far better, their engagement rate, all, you know, all those things uh, that, that would demonstrate the employees found it much more meaningful because they framed instead of their, the five or 10 things on my list that I find meaningful and the 90 obstacles to that, mm-hmm. those 90 other things were a means to an end of those five or 10 things that they found really valuable. And so it was a different frame. Another, another example, that was a friend of mine is an electrician. And his, when he's asked what he does, he says, I bring light to dark places. <laughs> and I'm like, what a beautiful That's frame. A, like, I, yeah. I would have thought, like, I look at schematics and put the red to red or black to black or something. He's yeah. like, I bring light to dark places. And, and it just goes to the power of framing what you do and how you do it. And so a lot of the conversations I have with clinicians are about about that. How do you job craft? How do you prioritize the things that bring you deepest value? So so when you talk about morality, that's kind of where I try to spend my most most of my energy is trying to help people identify even with things that might be distracting or feel like an obstacle in the moment, how can I prioritize the center of the target for what I'm here for and what I feel like I should be doing? Mm -hmm. And then and then um, framing my work around that. Even in these situations where you feel like there's an awful lot of stuff that's working against you or you are a widget, right? Like how, how do you get out of the widgetification? Um, yeah. Tell me a little bit about secular morality or, 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 or even if, even if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great question. And, you know, I, I have good conversations with my friend, Joel, the chaplain in New York, who's a secular humanist about these kind of discussions broadly, because I think it's important to kind of the essence of 
spiritual care as a profession and chaplaincy as a profession. I think for most people, secular morality is some version of, I remember the movie, A Beautiful Mind. I don't, oh, remember, yeah, yeah. I don't remember the guy, Nash yeah. was his last name. I think I, yeah. I can't think of the guy's first name, but, but his, my understanding from a layperson non Nobel prize winner in economics is his, he won the Nobel because his thesis was you need to do not only what's best for you, but what's best for you and the maximum amount of people around you. Right. And kind of from an economic sense. And I, I think that's a pretty good description of a good secular morality and which is, which comes really close often to Buddhist ethics, candidly, which mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. don't just look after number one or myself uh, in a very Machiavellian kind of uh, world sometimes, Yes. but how do we do what's best for uh, the people on the margins? How do we do what's best for underrepresented or people who have, um, you know, gross inequity uh, occurring to them on a regular basis? How do we do what right for the community in Buffalo after the shooting mm-hmm. there just recently? Those kind of things. So the question isn't just about what's best for me, but how can my efforts be aimed at a, a, a greater good, maybe? Mm-hmm. And so to me, that that kind of is a, is a plumb line or a through line uh, to me for kind of a secular morality. Brian, I... I have so many things I want to talk to you about. <laughs> Likewise. And we're getting towards the end of the time that we, we sure. have. And I'm hoping that you may come back another time and we can continue some of this that. talk because I, I just feel like we've touched the surface of some of this stuff. But I have no doubt that the people listening to this have as much interest in this as I have. Mm. Full disclosure, I'm not a very religious person at all. But at the end of Great. this, I kind of feel like I need a chaplain. So I really appreciate the the perspective you bring to this and the work you're doing. And this is just wonderful. And thank you for connecting my soul to my Mm. role. And Mm. I really appreciate your time and thought on this. So we would love to have you back sometime. Absolutely. Well, thank you for trusting me with the time. And for those of you who this has kind of struck a nerve on some level, I do encourage you to reach out to your chaplain in your uh, healthcare setting. Most of most of you have probably a chaplain adjacent role on some level. And so you can potentially reach out and, and start a conversation. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. So, Simon, that was a really interesting conversation. I feel like it's such an unexpected role. I mean, I've heard about chaplains in hospitals and in other healthcare systems and in assisted living facilities, but I've never heard about them in something like an insurer. You know, I thought exactly the same thing. I thought it was fascinating that a large organization would think to have a chaplain. I thought it was interesting that a chaplain would choose to work for a really large organization. And I thought Brian uh, was so interesting in his perspective insofar as his spouse is a physician and here he is working within a large insurance company. All things that were unexpected to me, but really make him a very unique voice in this area. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the perspective of the spouse of a physician I thought was fascinating. I think being a spouse of a physician really helps him in the work that he does with individuals, too, because he has a bit of an insider-outsider perspective, right? He can see how the work might be impacting the people on his team, and he knows from a secondhand provider perspective what the struggles might be. Yeah, I think not only does he see both sides of it, he brings a perspective that many of us in healthcare sometimes put on the back burner a little bit, which is the idea of, as I spoke about with him, secular morality and morality from the point of view of a chaplain. Yeah. Religion can play a role in morality, but it doesn't have a corner on the market. 
Right. And I think that's really important. We get asked by quite a few people about that intersection between religion and moral injury or religion and morality and the idea that they are related, they can be related, but they don't have to be related. And I think that's a point that's often very confusing to people. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry I missed the conversation. Well, it was uh, obviously an important set of travel that you were doing, and um, I'm glad you're able to join us today. Me too. Thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios, and our podcast coordinator is Ariel Morton. To learn more about the nonprofit Moral Injury of Healthcare, you can go to our website at fixmoralinjury.org. If you'd like to support future episodes of the podcast or any of the work we do, you can make a donation while you're there. Our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram links are in the show notes. If you want to continue the conversation, you can. And you can help us spread the word by sharing episodes with friends and colleagues. Plus, if you subscribe, rate, and review the show, that makes it easier for new listeners to find us. Thank you for listening. And stay well.